Episode 2, Supercondylar Fractures. The highest yield takeaways from this episode are the radiographic signs and classifications of supercondylar fractures, emergency management, and understanding the theory behind pin placement. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Casting, the orthopedic podcast for medical students. I'm joined here by Jeff Kay, a PGY4 in the McMaster Orthopedic Program. Hey Jeff, pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, AJ. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself before we get started? Currently, I'm a senior resident at McMaster University. I'm in my fourth year right now, and I'm actually on service at McMaster University, which is our children's hospital. I'm currently in the midst of my fellowship application process, uh, which is going well. It's interesting doing it over virtual Zoom and things like that. So definitely used to this whole recording process. And I think these podcasts are great. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Honestly, in all my rotations, you've been one of the most knowledgeable residents I've ever come across. So it's great having you on the podcast. And even better that you're on rotation now at a children's hospital, because perfect for the topic today of supercondylar fractures. Background. Getting started with some background information, can you tell us a bit about some of the important epidemiological factors associated with supracondylar fractures? So the big thing is the age group that we see it in, and typically we'll see it in kids aged 5 to 7. So anytime we hear or see that we have a kid sort of around 5 to 7 years old, and we hear about the mechanism of injury, which is usually we call in orthopedics a foosh or fall into an outstretched hand, and in kids, that's usually when they're on the monkey bars or on trampolines, those are, I guess, the two most common times we'll see it. But right away, we're thinking supercondylar fracture. Got you. I know there's two different types of supercondylar fractures. Uh, there's flexion and extension. Uh, can you talk about which one's more common and any important differences between the two? So extension type are definitely the more common ones we see. I would say more than 90% are extension types. And that's usually with a mechanism where they're falling onto their outstretched hand with the elbow extended. And that's typically how kids tend to fall and try to catch themselves when they fall with their elbow extended. Mm. There's also the flexion type, which is when the elbow's flexed and they fall right onto the tip of the elbow. So if you can imagine a kid falls and flexes their elbow, catches themselves with their olecranon right down onto the ground, that's usually how we'll end up having the flexion type fractures. Gotcha. Anatomy. Let's quickly chat about the anatomy first. So the condyles of the humerus, kind of the bony outgrowth at the distal end of the bone. Uh, my understanding is that supracondylar means that the fracture would be occurring just above or proximal to these condyles. My question for you is, does the term supracondylar necessarily mean that this fracture is completely extra articular? Not necessarily. I would say the majority of times, yes, they're purely extra-articular, but often we'll have an intra-articular component as well. And sometimes we'll have a more complex fracture where uh, there's a fracture right through above the condyles, but there'll also be extension into the joint. Mm. So they can be intra-articular too, although as you mentioned, typically they're purely above the condyles. Imaging. Now you mentioned that these fractures are mainly occurring in younger kids, like that five to seven-year-old age range. Now, looking at an x-ray of a kid, pretty tough to tell what's bone, what's growth plate, what's a fracture. I've heard a ton about the ossification centers. I've seen the chart on orthobullets. As the junior resident, how much of the ossification center stuff do we need to know? 
typically it's not that important in terms of memorizing exactly what age each of the different ossification centers ossify and fuse. What's more important is just getting the general sense of looking at x-ray and trying to understand how old the patient is approximately and to understand what's normal and what's abnormal. And sometimes when you're looking at pediatric x-rays early on, especially of the elbow with so many different ossification centers, you'll see one of these ossification centers and think, is this a fracture? Is this abnormal? So that's why it's important just to get the hang of seeing what different x-rays look like with pediatric patients of different ages. But understanding exactly what age the centers ossify and what age they fuse isn't as important. It might be a question that's asked on an exam. So in that sense, it's nice to have a little acronym to remember. The one that people typically use is CRITO for capitellum, radial head, internal epicondyle, which is the medial epicondyle, trochlea, olecranon, and external epicondyle, which is lateral epicondyle. So that's the order in which they ossify. Um, and that's a question that can be commonly asked for medical students, but thinking of the exact ages aren't as important. Is there anything that you look at when looking at an x-ray to tell whether or not there's a supraconylar fracture? So the most important things on the radiographs to look for, number one, looking for a posterior sail sign. And you'll hear this term quite a bit when you're either on uh, an emergency rotation or orthopedic rotation. But what you're looking for is a change at the back of the elbow. It sort of looks like an effusion if you have ever seen an effusion in a knee joint. So it will be a darker appearance on the x-ray just at the back of the elbow. And what that tells us is that there's an effusion in the elbow joint, which usually means it's a hemarthrosis and a fracture. So sometimes you don't actually see the fracture line, but if you see a posterior shale sign that's telling you there probably is a fracture involved here. The other thing that's important to look for is what we call the anterior humeral line, which is an extension in the cortex at the anterior aspect of the humerus. So if you think of the cortex on the lateral view of the x-ray of the humerus as a line, you extend that line distally and you wanna see where that line is touching. So in a normal patient, that line will be bisecting the middle of the capitellum, which is right at the bottom of the elbow when you're looking at a lateral. That tells you that the elbow is well aligned. When there's a displaced fracture, sometimes that line is located anterior to the capitellum, which tells you there might be a supracondylar fracture. So looking at where that anterior humor line bisects and the posterior sail sign are the two most important things. Wow, can I just say, uh, you did a fantastic job of explaining how to diagnose these fractures on x-ray. Painted a very clear picture there. To sum it up, looking on the lateral view, you're looking just posterior to the humerus for a sail sign, and anteriorly, you're tracing a line down the humerus to see if it bisects the capitellum. Great. So since we're already on to talking about assessment and diagnosis, assessment. I want to talk about some of the things that you're trying to rule out or things you're worried about when you're assessing these patients with supracondylar fractures. You could categorize these as vascular injuries and nerve injuries. How common are these injuries in supracondylar fractures and what are the specific types of injuries that you're trying to rule out here? So neurovascular injuries in supracondylar fractures are actually surprisingly very common. And this is both important to know as a medical trainee, but also for parents that are coming into the ER. So this is something that's really important to tell them and talk about as soon as you see the parent and the family when they come into ER. Let's break it up into vascular injury and nerve injury. And we'll talk about vascular injuries first. So with supracondylar fractures, the most important thing to do when a patient first comes in is to check if there's a pulse. When we're talking about vascular injuries, you can separate patients into three categories. 
Number one, there's a pulse and the hand looks great in terms of perfusion. There's no issues. Number two, there's no pulse. You can't get a pulse either by palpation or by Doppler, which you would check after palpation, but the hand looks perfused. And in terms of perfusion, what we're looking for is color, warmth, capri fill. Those are the three most important things to look for. As long as the capri fill is less than two seconds and the hand looks pink, warm, well perfused, that's category two. The third category would be no pulse, a white and cool hand. And that's when we get very worried. That would turn this, and we'll talk about management a little bit later, but that would turn this from being something that's urgent to being something that's emergent. From an anatomical perspective, are we thinking that this is a fracture that's causing damage or impingement of the brachial artery? Yeah, it's typically the brachial artery, uh, and it's because you have a spike at the anterior aspect of the humerus, that spike can impinge on the brachial artery and block it. And that's why you don't get the pulse. Gotcha. Cool. So is that all to talk about the uh, vasculature? That's the main things in terms of vascular injury. So you want to look at the perfusion of the hand and you want to check for a pulse. That's the first thing you do when you see a patient with a supracondylar fracture. The next thing that's important to look for is the neurological status of the upper extremity. What you're looking for is both sensory and motor function. So AJ, when you look at a patient with an upper extremity injury, what sort of tests for sensory and motor function do you think we do? In terms of the motor distal extremity exam, I'm gonna be wanting to ask the patient to make an okay sign or oppose the first and second digits, and that'll test the AIN. I want them to give me a thumbs up. That'll test the thumb extension through the radial nerve. And I want them to kind of scissor their fingers, AKA abduct and adduct their fingers. And that's testing the intrinsic ulnar nerve function. In terms of sensory function, I would want to test at the first dorsal web space for the radial nerve, and then the volar pads of the second and fifth digits for the median and ulnar nerve, respectively. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly correct. And that's something you want to do in every patient that comes in with any sort of upper extremity fracture, but especially for the supracondylar fractures. The incidence of a neurological injury is actually quite high in supracondylar fractures. And that's why it's really, really important preoperatively that we have that checked and that any findings we have is discussed with the patient. Uh, the family is discussed with the surgeon and documented in all the patient's charts. And that has to be done preoperatively. Got it. And it seems like the AIN is the most commonly affected nerve in the extension type supracondylar fractures. Yeah, and that you, you got that before I had a chance to ask you, but that's one of the most common questions that as a medical student, you'll be asked. Um, so knowing that the AIN is the most common injury in the extension type uh, supracondylar fracture is, is very important to know. Classification. So Jeff, we're at rounds, you know, 7am, everyone's tired and it's your turn. So the attending asks you, what's the classification of supracondylar humerus fractures? What do you say? Well, as a bonus, you wanna pop in the name for the classification system, and here it's the Gartling classification system for supracondylar fracture. Um, what's important to know is that there's three main types, and that's for the extension type. So there's type one, which are non-displaced supracondylar fractures. There's type two, which are displaced fractures, but they have an intact posterior hinge. And there's type three, 
which are completely displaced. As a bonus as well, some additional classification can add into this. So there's type 2A and type 2B, and that tells you if there's no rotation, which would be a type 2A, and type 2B would be with rotation and translation. The other important thing to add in is if there's medial comminution. So what you would do is you would say type 2A, and then you would add an M if there's a medial comminution, or type 3M if there's complete displacement and there's medial comminution. So the M is nice to add in um, for a bonus additional classification. You might hear someone talking about a type 4 supracondylar fracture. That was added in after, uh, and that's when it's unstable in both flexion and extension. Um, but for the old school surgeons, they're not going to ever have heard about a type 4, so that's not too important to know. Got it. And so this classification system is important because it guides management. Treatment. So typically the principle in orthopedics that I've come across is that for a non-displaced fracture or a type 1 fracture, we're going to be treated non-operatively. How do you cast or splint these type 1 non-displaced supracondylar fractures? So the first thing is that we're going to be putting a circumferential cast on. With the adult population, we're used to splinting and just putting a back slab. But in kids, we put a circumferential cast on. Uh, they don't have as much swelling, and we want to ensure that there's no displacement. Number two is the flexion of the elbow. So with these fractures, we typically want to have the elbow in 60 to 80 degrees of flexion in a circumferential cast that goes from above the elbow down past the wrist, but we want to make sure that we don't put it in more than 90 degrees of flexion. And that's because you don't want to reduce the volume of the capsule of the elbow too much and cause a Volkmann's contracture. Exactly. One of the most devastating complications after a supracondylar fracture would be a Volkmann's contracture. And typically that happens when there's too much pressure at the anterior aspect of the elbow, and it can be from external compression from the cast. So you want to prevent that devastating complication and avoid flexion more than 90 degrees. Got it. That's a key point. Can't stress that enough. So moving on to type 2, I think we may get into understanding why that separation between type 2A and type 2B is important. So the type 2A fractures are the ones that are displaced without rotation or translation. How would you recommend treating those? So the type 2As I would say are the most controversial in terms of treatment. And that's because you'll have some surgeons treating these in the operating room, whereas other surgeons treating these non-operatively. I think the key factor to look at is the anterior humeral line that we discussed earlier. And if that anterior humeral line still bisects the capitellum, you can treat type 2A supracondylar fractures non-operatively in a cast the same way you treat type 1 fractures. But if there's a type 2A fracture where the anterior humeral line is anterior to the capitellum, you're going to want to bring that to the operating room to get the reduction. Got it. So with these fractures, uh, when you're doing a closed reduction, what's your process? So that's another controversial point. In our center specifically, we don't do closed reductions on supracondylar fractures, and it's one of the only fractures that we don't. We'll either have fractures that are in acceptable alignment, and we'll cast it and flex the elbow up, which sometimes has an indirect reduction component when you're flexing the elbow up, and we'll take an x-ray and see what it looks like. But we don't do a full closed reduction under conscious sedation at our center at least. And the reason for that is we're nervous about causing an iatrogenic nerve or vascular complication. So we don't like to do that in an uncontrolled setting in the emergency department. We'll only do the closed reduction in the operating room. Cool. And once you're in the OR, how do you get that fracture back into place? 
So the close reduction maneuver that we do in the operating room, and I think it's important to discuss the positioning of the patient. So typically we'll have the patient supine position on the operating room table, and typically we'll have an arm board attached to the operating room table. And what's important is that that arm board is radiolucent because we're gonna have fluoroscopy coming in and taking shots through the arm board. And the technique to close reduce a supracondylar fracture would be to take the elbow out into extension, have longitudinal traction, so sometimes this entails having an assistant holding the shoulder so that you're not pulling the patient off the operating room table when you're, use, when you're doing that longitudinal traction. You hear these horror stories, so that's the big... <laughs> <laughs> right, a bit of counter-traction is always key. Exactly. The next step is to correct the varus and valgus deformity, and that's the deformity that you might see if there's medial comminution. Uh, and then the next step is to correct any medial or lateral translation. So you're correcting the coronal deformities first with the elbow and extension. You're taking your fluoroscopy shot to ensure that you're happy with the coronal alignment. And then the key step is you take the elbow and you flex it up quickly with thumb pressure over the posterior aspect of the olecranon and bring that up to the correct the sagittal alignment. Wow, that's awesome. So first with the elbow and extension, provide some traction and correct the medial or lateral deformities and then quickly flex the elbow with your thumb on the olecranon and fix the anterior posterior deformities. That's fantastic. Thanks for that explanation. So you just talked about the risk of any iatrogenic neurovascular injuries. Emergency management. Let's go back to talking about the patient who comes in with the disvascular pulseless white hand. Is there anything that you're doing urgently or emergently in terms of close reduction before that patient gets to the OR? So this is another area that's center dependent. In some okay. centers, they'll do a close reduction in, in the ER with a cool pulseless hand. In our center, that patient would be booked as a priority one, which means in an emergent case and brought straight to the operating room to do close reduction and to see if the pulse and the perfusion of the hand return. So that's center dependent and it's important as a medical student, if you're going on elective in different places or if you're at that hospital for, for the first time, check and see what the staff preferences are in those kind of cases. Right. Treatment. In, in terms of the more complex fractures, you know, the type 2B, the type 3, or even that, that type 4, uh, I understand that we're going to want to do a closed reduction, but also stabilize the reduction with percutaneous pins. So as the operating surgeon, uh, how many pins are you going in with and what configuration are you placing those pins in? The number of pins in the configuration is really dependent on the classification and the type of fracture. And this is where the classification system is actually very useful. Hmm. For the type 2 fractures, where the posterior hinge is intact, typically two pins are enough. And when you're using the two pins in a type 2 fracture, you'll put those pins in laterally and they'll be bicortical. For type three fractures, typically three pins are needed because the posterior cortex is disrupted and you want increased stabilization. The configuration of these three pins is another controversial area in supracondylar management, but the two most common ways and configurations of these pins would be having three pins lateral versus the cross pinning technique where two pins are lateral and one pin is medial. Got you. From my understanding, you're starting on the lateral side distally and you're firing the pins up proximally from lateral to medial 
and you want to kind of catch some of that or you want to kind of move posteriorly as well? So on the lateral, you want your pins to be directly in the center of the bone. Okay. So you want to see that pin right in between the anterior and posterior cortex. Okay. When you're looking at an uh, AP fluoroscopic image, you're going to want to have the pins coming from lateral to medial, going from distal to proximal diagonally. Okay. So another question that I've commonly heard in OR in the OR and at rounds is, what's the recommended pin placement in the management of supracondylar fractures? You already talked about the number of pins and the general trajectory. Uh, are there any other factors that you're thinking about with pin placement? That's a great question because there's a few very important factors to ensure that you have adequate stability with the pins. So number one, you want the pins as far apart as possible. You want to have the pins divergent, which means pointing away from each other. You want to make sure that the pins don't cross at the fracture site. So you want them to cross before the fracture site, typically outside the skin. And you want to make sure that the pins are engaging both the medial and lateral column of the distal humerus. Okay. And would you ever consider using a medial-sided pin? So the, the cases where the medial-sided pins would be considered strongest would be in cases where there's medial comminution. Mm. And that's when you have a collapse of the medial column. And that's where biomechanically the medial pin has been shown to be the most important. So when there is medial comminution and you want to have more biomechanical stability, you would consider putting a medial pin in. But AJ, could you tell me why some surgeons are afraid of the medial pin? I think it would be the proximity of the ulnar nerve. Exactly. So the incidence of iatrogenic ulnar nerve injury is definitely higher with the placement of the medial pin. That ulnar nerve runs just behind the medial epicondyle and the pin tip typically comes right through the medial epicondyle. So it's sometimes millimeters away from the nerve and you have to be very careful. Wow. So what are things that you would do to decrease the chance of an ulnar nerve injury when you're inserting this pin? So as opposed to the lateral pins, which are just placed in percutaneously through the skin, with the medial pin, you want to make sure you can actually see and protect, ideally, the ulnar nerve. So uh, some strategies are making a small incision over the medial epicondyle, bluntly carrying down right to bone, and keeping the elbow out in extension, which helps to keep the ulnar nerve from subluxing anterior and being injured by the pin that comes right through the medial epicondyle. Got it. And you've linked to a really nice JAOS article, which we'll definitely include in the show notes here that covers all of this. Clinical scenario. All right, Jeff. So let's bring it all together. So you're on call at the children's hospital. Your pager goes off. You call and the eMERGE doc says it's a supracondylar fracture. What are you thinking in going to see the patient and talk to their family? What are you worried about? And what's your approach and flow in management of this patient? So the first thing you want to know is the type of fracture and the neurovascular status of the limb. The management and what you're thinking is going to be very different if it's a type 2 fracture with a perfused hand versus a type 3 fracture with a poorly perfused hand. When you're going to see the patient, the number one thing you want to do is to have a discussion with the parents and make sure that they're understanding of the whole process. And what I find a lot of the time is a junior resident or medical student, when they see a patient with a supracondylar fracture for the first time, are concerned about getting all the stuff they need to have the patient admitted and all set up for surgery. And obviously that's important. You wanna make sure that you get the history, 
Um, you have the admission orders in, you get the consent form, you book the patient, uh, you admit the patient, you let the staff know. Those are important things, but it's also important to have a discussion with the family about what the expectations are for the injury, uh, for the recovery, and for possible complications. So that means talking to the family about the fact that the patient's going to be staying over overnight, the fact that if it's a type 3 fracture, they're going to need surgery. If there's some sort of neuropraxia, for example, an AIN palsy, you want to talk to the parent about what, what that means in terms of the recovery going forward and how we're going to follow and monitor that. And that's really important to do before surgery because you'd be surprised at how many times I'll come see a patient post-operatively when rounding and finding a neuropraxia and talking to the parents about it and realizing that they hadn't heard anything about that and didn't have that discussion preoperatively. And it's much harder to do after the surgery. So I would say that's the number one thing is talking to the parents about any of the current findings in terms of neurovascular compromise and just in terms of the recovery, the process, the surgical intervention, and what the next steps are going forward. Absolutely. I think that's something that we should always keep mindful of in orthopedics. Thank you so much for a great episode and I hope to have you on someday in the future again. All right. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.